Hello, hello, very warm welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and ideas to help you beat low interest rates and high inflation and get you investing in the stock market for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva, and a very warm welcome to episode six of the series. We've got a good one today. We're going to be speaking to Richard Harwood of the absolute giant in the wealth management space, Bruin Dolphin. Uh, and he's a he's a divisional director and financial planner, so he really knows his stuff when it comes to planning for your futures. And he's going to be discussing his view on markets at the moment and how we can approach this moment of market panic, but also moments of market panic more broadly, as well as some other essentials around financial planning and things to consider if you are thinking about retiring. Um, but for all of that, we're going to take a look at a few different things. We're going to have a look at what you can get for your savings right now. We've got some surprising trends in the over 50s leaving work, some painful increases, unfortunately, that are going to come in April, and potentially what Chancellor Rishi Sunak may do in the spring statement next week. Plus, we've got some big moves by central banks in our markets report. And then there's three company stories as well, um, which, you know, hopefully should pique your interest. But just before we start any of this, reminder, please subscribe. We need subscribers. But also, we've got our new site is up. Uh, it's looking great, stock full of lots of new things. But also, we've got our new platform review. So we, we review two types of platforms. We call, you know, one set we call DIY. So these are the full fat providers um, like our friends at AJ Bell and Interactive Investor, but also uh, do-it-with-me platforms, as we call it. So these are the robo-advisors, the simplified investment platforms, um, such as Nutmeg and Moneybox and the like, etc. So we do we do a big review on those, and, and it enables this kind of side-by-side comparison. Okay, just starting with cash. Now, we often bang this drum that interest rates are quite low, inflation is quite high, so your your real return is negative and therefore cash will will be losing quite a lot of, of money, especially at the moment with where we are with inflation. But cash is still important, obviously, within our finances, whether it's those emergency savings or other short-term goals that you might have. We need to keep cash for, for certain things, and Richard Harwood will, will go through uh, that in, in a second or interview. So I thought what would be quite useful is just for me to run through some of the cash products that are out there, and our good friends at Moneyfax keep an eye on all this stuff on a week-by-week basis. They sort of have a look at where the best deals are. So I thought I'd just very quickly run you through through um, some of those products from sort of least accessible through to to most accessible. So starting with the best two-year bond, that's Hampshire Trust Bank. That will give you 1.91%. The best one-year fixed-term deposit is from Brown Shipley, and that gives you 1.55%. Going down to an easy access bank account, that's from Synergy Bank. They'll give you 0.84%. And then we've got the easy access cash ISA. That's from Melton Building Society, and they'll pay you 0.8%. Um, and I thought just also just quickly on mortgages, they're saying that the best three-year fixed deal that you can get is from Nationwide, and that will give you 2.04%. Those are rising. Um, and I'm sure they'll rise again after today. Uh, today's announcement from the Bank of England. 
Uh, that one also has plenty of perks chucked into it. Seems quite good. And then finally, just if you're looking for credit cards with a good long amount of time on on 0% balance transfers, then Halifax offers a 32-month um, period where when you, you know, on your balance transfers, you'll get 0%. So um, that seems pretty good there. But of course, as I was saying, you know, real interest rates are not great. And just to give you an idea, I saw some figures from uh, the ONS and they they were sort of stating something quite quite stark that in the three months up to the end of January this year, we saw wages grow 3.8%. Okay, great. You know, wages are finally going up. They've, they've been stagnant for a very long time. But prices in the 12 months to, to the end of January this year rose by 5.5%. So that means for a lot of us, even though our wages are going up, we're actually seeing in real terms a haircut, unfortunately. Okay, let's get on to this story around over 50s leaving work. We saw some figures from AJ Bell and they're showing that, that COVID actually encouraged a lot of the over 50s to leave work. Uh, it was mainly mainly them out of, out of the chunk that sort of left the workforce. And, you know, it's about half a million of the over 50s have, have retired, which is a big jump following years of actually that what they sort of describe as economically inactive over 50 year olds. That rate was actually declining for, for, for many years. And, and now that's sort of sharply risen again. And the slight worry, I think, from Tom Selby, the retirement uh, expert over, over AJ Bell, is that sort of three in 10 of those are relying on their pensions to sustain themselves. And the big danger, again, Richard reiterates his point, is that this will, will, will run out. So, you know, if you draw on your pension quite early, uh, then, then obviously not only have you got many more years that you need to rely on it, but it gives it less time to grow. So, you know, if you were 50, and you had a 100k pot then and withdrew 5k a year then that would last you until 75 but if you uh wait to retire until 60 then that pot would be worth 148 grand if it grew at four percent for that you know that 10 years so that significantly changes your position um so just just sort of some interesting figures there i thought Okay, next up, I just thought I wanted to, you know, the cost of living crisis is obviously uh, quite present in people's minds and it's being stoked further by by uh, the Ukraine war as the price of commodities and oil shoots up and that feeds into those core costs uh, that many of us have and also businesses have. So um, unfortunately, the pain doesn't end there because, you know, in, in April, when we go into the new tax year, we we see some some new rises in things and some ways in which uh, you know our costs are going to go up further so i thought i'd just sort of remind you of some of the the changes that are coming and it's not, it's not great reading unfortunately um uh so first of all freezes so the chancellor is is, is sort of frozen a lot of a lot of uh, key thresholds tax thresholds until 2026 in, as a way of of uh, of earning the treasury some more money because as wages you know inflation and, and wages sort of rise it pushes people into higher tax bands so they pay more tax and therefore the treasury gets more whereas normally a lot of these thresholds rise in line with inflation so that it kind of keeps people on an even keel so it, it is a bit of a raid uh it was last year he sort of announced all this stuff 
Um, the key ones to mention, uh, so for in terms of freezes, income tax bans are frozen. So at twelve thousand five hundred and seventy for that for that um, uh, that personal tax free threshold, and then higher rate is is at fifty thousand two hundred and seventy. So, so they're frozen. The pension lifetime allowance as well, just over a million. Richard will get onto that. We're also seeing capital gains tax. That's frozen at twelve thousand three hundred. I think you know that was that is already quite generous. And I think if you're doing a lot of stuff through your ISAs and pensions, which is which is where a lot of that tax will be focused, uh, that will protect you from those taxes. So you know all the more reason to use those. And then the final one is just the inheritance tax rate. Uh, you kind of have this. Uh, uh, rate and then you have an, an extra rate that's added on to it if if the asset includes your main residence so that's 325k for for the for the inheritance tax rate and then another um, 175k is added to that for for the main resident nil band rate so um, those are frozen and again you know that's that's pushing quite a lot more more people to to paying inheritance tax so something to consider. Also, we are going to see some just rises, out and out rises potentially. So we've got the new social care tax plan, which is going to be paid for by national insurance contributions, which are going to rise by 1.25%. That's both for employees and employers. Um, and then there's dividend tax increases as well. So again, by 1.25% across all the bands there. Finally, the energy price cap in so the average bill will rise £693 to £1,971 for the average household. So that's, that's, it's, a, it's a nasty steep rise there and it's expected to push a quarter of UK households into, into, um, into poverty, into fuel poverty. So, you know, all in all, not great news, of course, as we say, making sure you utilise some of those wrappers protects you from from some of these rises as well. Um, what we could expect from Rishi Sunak next week? Well, the Chancellor, you know, will be very aware of this of this nasty cost of, of living crisis. I'm sure there will be some some help uh, offered. Potentially, we could see within energy they might extend their two hundred pound energy bill loan scheme. Uh, which is it, it's, it just gives um, households the ability to uh, a bit more time to sort of pay those bills. It gives them five years to pay back the loan. He could also delay those those national insurance and dividend um, tax hikes that we that we talked about. For pensioners, we could see a move back to some elements of the triple lock, like uh, the inflation measure, because at three point one percent. It, it is it is going to see them hit pretty hard by those essential costs which tend to be a big sort of chunk of of what they pay out so um be interesting to see what happens there and i think the final one is that income tax bans could be unfrozen you know they usually rise with inflation and this this freezing is next year expected to earn the treasury 1.6 billion well <laughs> or cost us 1.6 billion so so i think um you know that that could be one area that they, they sort of focus on so there's a few things that he might do there let's let's see what happens really all right let's get on to the markets and uh interesting sort of news this week uh primarily is is the federal reserve raised its target rate on on wednesday for the first time since 2018 so this was following a two-day meeting with Fed officials as it's accelerating really this shift from fighting pandemic fires to now dealing with 
growing concerns around inflation um, and, and the fallout of, of sanctions from the Ukraine war. Lifting this key interest rate by 0.25%, it's now targeting a range of between 025 and 0.5%. And, you know, you can see the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, has really hardened his tone on inflation, inflation making clear that stabilizing these prices, which is one of the key objectives of the Fed, is, is sort of paramount and uh, to the policymakers there. So this is what you would, you know, economists would describe as monetary policy. That's that central bank policy becoming hawkish uh, and significantly more so. And you can see that they sort of they showed these dot plot charts, which which shows what the different officials expect the rates to rise between. And and what it's showing is that uh, by the end of next year, it will be between 1.75 and 2 percent. Uh, in terms of its range that's that's potentially six increases you know so it's quite aggressive in in terms of how they've changed you know their projections of what what they're going to do um the following year it could rise to it's expected to rise to 2.8 percent so that's quite significant what what they've said is that you know this all puts the brakes on the economy is because it, it raises the cost of debt to both businesses and individuals and, you know, 2.4% was the level that officials felt it would really start to slow the US economy. So what they're expecting is a level, you know, above that. So uh, it's it, it's quite a, a serious statement, I suppose, around we're going to tackle inflation. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting, you know, and, and I think the war in Ukraine has sort of cajoled them into into thinking, gosh, inflation could really start to bed in here and and that's a, that's a big fear for any central banker, really. And I think a lot of economists and investors watching this have, have been quite pleased that the, that the Fed is moving in this way. Uh, specifically, they're saying that they see this, this higher oil and commodity prices that we've sort of talked about um, really weighing on, on its economy. And, um, you know, we can see that we've seen... It's it's come off a bit, but we've seen crude hit one hundred and thirty nine dollars a barrel, so um, it 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 it's definitely noticeable. The Bank of England has also today, day of recording on Thursday, followed the Fed in, in lockstep of this and and raised its key interest rate by another twenty five basis points to zero point seven five percent. So that's its third hike since since December of last year. In Europe, we are seeing the stock 600 up a little bit. I think there's some there's some tentative hopes surrounding talks of peace, I think, between Ukraine and Russia, particularly as Ukraine has started to uh, indicate that it might go for some form of neutrality and, and, and not joining NATO. Uh, and, um, you know, there's been some good noises as well from Sergei Lavrov, uh, the, the Russian foreign secretary as well, on, on those points. So fingers crossed on, on that, really. Um, so that was pretty good. And I, th I think also we saw some optimism as well from uh, talk from Beijing. They, were, they are, seem to be rolling out measures that they are, are going to be boosting their economy and markets with some more stimulus which, you know, is soothing some investor concerns as as they were seeing a bit of a slowdown there as it as it continues to battle COVID and has imposed quite harsh lockdown measures there, which is affecting its economy. So a bit of positivity really in in 
uh, in this week, which is which is good. All in all, over the past fortnight, we can see that the S and P five hundred is ever so slightly down 0.13% at 4,358 points. The FTSE 100 is up 0.71% to 7,292. The stock 600 is up 2.62% to 449. And the Nikkei 225 is up 0.28% to 26,653. Okay, let's get on to companies. And I thought I'd start with Deliveroo. This is the food delivery app. I'm sure you probably know it. They released some results this morning and they showed that, you know, they've been doing pretty well in terms of the penetration of the UK market. Their revenues have risen 57%. Uh, this is last year, sorry. And the gross transactional values, that's how much we're sort of spending in our baskets, is risen 71%. So good stuff there but they are even deeper in the red than they were the year before. So they've blown 308 million compared to 226 million the year before. But this is seen as a good thing though. It's the right kind of uh, losses to be in because they've been just ramping up this very aggressive growth strategy in quite a competitive market. I mean, I have all the apps on my phone and, and I just basically cycle through who's giving me offers really to, ch to choose which one. So they're quite aggressively trying to capture the market and and for Deliveroo, you know, they're just trying to get as much of the UK market as they can, saying that its riders now cover 75% of the population. So, um, you know, get, getting there really. And, you know, COVID obviously put a lot of these apps in our minds it was very convenient at that time and it seems to be sticking that kind of service that we got from them particularly on-demand grocery orders as well they seem to be increasing there but of course you know with the cost of living crisis that we have dis discussed uh, quite extensively you know our savings are dented in these kind of spends these optional kind of spends we could be cooking at home we don't need to be ordering stuff I think it, it, you know is, is going to feed through plus also supermarket restaurant costs they're going to be going up because uh, it's it's those sorts of, of costs that they're facing so uh, takeaway prices will also rise and that may also further encourage us to sort of cut back on on some of these uh, these spends Sydney World Next. Now, this company really had a torrid time during COVID. As you can imagine, all cinemas were basically shut. So it it, it had a, a terrible 2020. I mean, it lost an eye-watering £3 billion, which is just enormous. So it's narrowed that. It's it's lost down uh, last year and, you know, managed to get it down to £708 million and, it, and it can thank a few blockbuster smashes like Spider-Man uh, for that. But there's still a lot of uncertainty remains, I suppose. It was a bit of a slow start because of Omicron, um, uh, which slightly crimped its, its beginning to the year. And But but moreover than that, it, it, it had this failed bid for a Canadian chain Cineplex. So it was a $2.1 billion bid. It was failed. It was abandoned in 2020. And a Canadian court has ordered it to pay $900 million in damages which is enormous and, um, you know, considering the state of its finances right now uh, would be terrible, but it's appealing, which means it's going to, that, that the sort of outcome of that will get kicked out much further um, and it hasn't been actually even booking it into its balance sheet as a liability because it's kicked it out, I think, beyond 2023. 
So it says, you know, that's when it assesses its finances or whatever. So that could, you know, I'm sure investors will be thinking about that. Are they looking at how it's been trading? It's it's not been um, too bad. And I think, you know, the other thing is, is that there's a big string of pent up releases that obviously got delayed because of all the COVID uh, misery. And, um, you know, the Marvel Studios got quite a lot in the pipeline. There's a Top Gun sequel as well, which uh, is quite highly anticipated and, and you know, and, and I think the, the investors can see that that's all going to draw lots of audiences in who've really missed out on the cinema. I know I certainly have, and uh, yeah, I suppose put those popcorn machines on an overdrive. Really, final one for you that hasn't been doing so well in terms of how react uh, how investors have have reacted. A bit of a bit of a fall in its share price um, is Ocado. So this is the food delivery group, and it's. Uh, you know, it's seeing some retail sales down, really. Costs and weakening demand are weighing in there. Ocado Retail is this joint venture that it does with M&S. And that saw sales decline 5.7% in the quarter to 565 million. So, and this is a shop is start to return to these more normalized habits. And also inflation is biting as well. And in terms of normalized habits, I mean, they're just not, we're not quite filling up our baskets in the same way you know because we're not hunkering down we haven't got this sort of end of days kind of um, view of things so that's meant that we've seen this 15% drop in the average basket sizes there and um, and plus we're also getting out there and just doing more shopping ourselves I think they do have I mean what they are pointing to is yeah but we've got some great new fulfillment centers on the way I think the one in particular that they point out is Bista, which will add capacity of around 30,000 orders per week in the second half of of the year. Okay, let's get on to our interview with Richard Harwood from Bruin Dolphin. Now, it's very easy as an investor to start worrying when big crises emerge and newspapers end up stocked full of gloomy headlines day after day with the searing volatility of markets writ large. It is during times like these that everyday investors, understandably worried about seeing the value of their hard-earned savings plummet, start to make decisions that can crystallise their losses and damage their long-term wealth. So to help us think about the right sort of investing strategies to employ during these inevitable and unforeseen moments of market madness, today I'm going to be speaking to Richard Harwood, Divisional Director, Financial Planning, from Bruin Dolphin, a large wealth manager here in the UK that look after around £50 billion of client money. Richard, a very warm welcome to you. Hello. Richard, shall we discuss the investing backdrop first, I think? You know, we've seen inflation rising before the war started in the Ukraine. And then since the price of certain commodities and oil has meant that inflation has been stoked sharply higher. And of course, that's impacting this cost of living crisis that many of us are facing. So how are markets reacting? Um, well, that's that's a, a whole subject in itself that I could probably talk for a fortnight on. But just to try to keep it uh, short. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think uh, conflict uh, historically no, doesn't do what you expect. People always think that some sort of war breaks out and suddenly markets go uh, go peculiar. In actual fact, what affects markets worse is uncertainty. So typically, any as any conflict approaches, markets really struggle. Once we're actually in a conflict, we almost know what's happening. So things tend to stabilize a bit more. This one's slightly less so because 
a lot of people believed there wasn't going to be conflict, and then suddenly there was. Um, but in reality, it is not always conflict that affects things. What affects things overall is uncertainty. And at the moment, there is clearly, some people would call it a war, some people wouldn't, um, a war. But in itself, that doesn't necessarily affect markets. Uh, probably a great effect on markets is, is the sanctions that we're applying, because those will rebound on ourselves, some good or some bad. But what drives it is the uncertainty. So investment markets, as long as people know, and by people being the the whole accumulation of all investors, as long as people know broadly what is happening, good or bad, markets tend to be stable. What does affect the real rate of things is, of course, inflation. Um, inflation is the rate at which prices rise. And inflation at the moment is running about um, – five percent and it's likely to go even higher during the year our expectation is it'll end up back at about this level by the end of the year so ultimately what you have to spend to live your life is probably going to be something like five percent more by the end of this year than it was at the start um and that in itself creates uncertainty will people be able to afford what they used to will that affect businesses Will people demand more higher salaries? Will that affect businesses? So realistically, we are in worrying times. Clearly, if there's a war on, that worries us personally. In itself, that's not necessarily the big driver of, of investment markets. There haven't been massive falls. And what there has been is equally due to our sanctions and inflation as it is to the war itself. Okay, and I suppose... I mean, you've mentioned inflation there. So so the overall impact hasn't been too bad. But this, there's been this sort of emerging worry, hasn't there, around this idea that it could affect economic growth whilst at the same time stoking inflation. So you end up with this, this portmanteau called stagflation, as, as economists kind of use. Um, and, and that can have a big impact on how central banks can then start to move their levers as well. Are you are you seeing that as as a worry, as something that you're worried about? Not necessarily in itself. Inflation is always a worry. Um, as far as investment markets, of course, are concerned, it, it is not always bad because uh, if there is inflation, then someone who's got money in the bank uh, will get probably much less of a return compared to inflation interest rates might stay low inflation might grow and they would therefore in real terms in spending terms lose money what's in the bank which can sometimes drive people to put money into shares and therefore investment markets um, do not necessarily not necessarily tumble because of inflation they can actually have a, a bit of an impetus because more people put money into them but it is it is a worry as to what happens to individual parts of the market and um it, the inflation at the moment is, is principally drive, driven by supply. Uh, historically, inflation might be there because people are simply getting carried away. They're very confident. They're spending more money. The more people want to buy something, the more prices will rise on a supply and demand basis. So often, inflation comes from people simply feeling they've got the money, wanting to spend more, driving prices up. Uh, and what an economy would do uh, is they would put up interest rates, which would encourage people to save in the bank, would would reduce people's ability to spend because their mortgage has got more expensive. 
and would reduce companies' ability to uh, to borrow money to expand. And that quietens the economy down a bit. At the moment, of course, it's not as easy to put interest rates up. And, and the reason for that is that uh, Western economies have got massive debt from, from COVID. So the UK has, I think, in the order of 350 billion extra debt. Uh, and if interest rates went up by one or 2%, the government has to find somewhere to get the, the that money from to pay the interest. So at the moment, the government doesn't really want to get inflation out of control, clearly, because it causes pain. Um, but also, we don't really want to rise interest rates massively. They will almost certainly go up, but they are at historic lows. We're not going to see, I don't think, massive interest rate rises we might see quite a few but small degrees because if they put interest rates up in order to, to to sort of quieten down inflation it would do it by causing pain to individuals and it's not really voluntary spending we're not all going out buying posh meals and flash cars we're spending the money on petrol and gas so putting up interest rates will happen but probably not massively because that would cost the government in borrowing and it still wouldn't help the price of oil. Um, a lot of the inflation is caused by simply supply and demand around the world. The world quietened down during the pandemic. It's expanded much quicker than most people thought. So when people turned their businesses into smaller businesses, it's much harder to expand. Therefore, there is a supply and demand issue. Um, <clears throat> so there are a lot of strains and the strains are, are caused not really by people going out and voluntarily spending. Um, but at the end of the day, it does mean that the money that we pay for things um, has to go further. Things cost more. It, interest rates will likely to go up, but I, I think that has to be more of a token. I don't think it's going to be a massive break on the economies. Um, the hope is the price of oil, the price of gas, the supply of labour, all of those factors will loosen over the year and interest rates will come back down a bit. But I think we'll have them for a time yet. Let's get on to sort of how we should react during sort of periods of market volatility. And, um, you know, I just wanted to to ask you about, you know, it, it seems easy to sort of remain calm and focused on your on your long-term financial goals when, you know, everything is going well. But then you get these periods of, of volatility and it can be difficult not to panic. You know, as I sort of said at the top, you know, you're seeing the value of hard-earned savings reduce. So what would be your advice? I mean, because it, it doesn't just apply to now. Markets will forever always go through these periods where unusual things happen. As you stated, uncertainty suddenly rises. It means analysts don't know how to price the impact of these things on markets. So things get to t tend to get sold. And that's when we sort of see these big dips. So what would be your sort of broad advice as a financial planner, you know, for, for investors listening and, and the best strategies to employ? I think you, you hit on it. Marcus, when you but the, the very first things you said in terms of a financial plan, um, because if you have the right plan, actually it should not affect you at all. Uh, and by the right plan, I mean that if actually what you need is you are saving for retirement and that's 20 years away, then what you need is to make sure that your fund in 20 years is the correct amount or as close to that as you can get. And Clearly, what's going to happen in 20 years 
is affected by what has happened every day between now and then. But actually, a fluctuation for a few days or months in that 20-year time makes very, very little difference. And there will be as many rises in, in value as there will falls. So it is a matter of what your plan says. If you are saving for the long term, you're saving for 20 years time. It might feel slightly uncomfortable to see your, your, your value of investments fall by 10% over a few days. But if that's 19 years off, it doesn't really matter. And in 19 years where you're looking back, you won't look and think, oh, on that day, this happened or that happened. The problem is, if you are saving for 20 years and you're in year 19 and it falls, that's when people are more concerned. So the important thing is, it is understanding what you need and from that making a plan, but then understanding the plan. Um, if you've got a long-term commitment to save, you will know that inevitably on 50% of the days, the markets will go up and on 50% of the days, the markets will go down. And just as people don't jump around and, and, and shout eureka when they make 3% in a day, they shouldn't necessarily cry when they lose 3% in a day. Emotionally, we do, but logically, we shouldn't. So the important thing is to, to understand what your view of risk is, actually how you feel about risk. How worried will you be if your funds fall by 1% or 2% or 3%? And um, any advisor will spend time assessing that with someone and understanding what their what we call attitude to risk is. And realistically, an attitude to risk is how you feel when funds fall. They will also look at what we call capacity for loss, which is a very grand term, but in simple terms is, can you afford to lose a bit of money? Um, and again, with a long-term saving, that is not as important. It is in the short term. So the most important thing of any plan is, how long does it last for? If you're saving for something that's two years away, then you very much will be bothered if, if your funds go up and down, but you probably shouldn't be investing in very volatile investments if it's for the short term. So in reality, people should be thinking about the term they're investing and doing different things. If you're saving to go on holiday, people put the money in the bank. If you're saving to retire, people use much more long-term volatile investments. Um, the problem comes <clears throat> if you're mixing those two. If you either don't know what your view of risk is, so you're chasing high gains without really appreciating the risks, or you've got your terms wrong. I'm actually saving for something in three years' time, and I invest it into high-risk shares. That realistically seems a daft thing to do, and we can all logically realize that is a daft thing but some people still will get it wrong they will find themselves overexposed to risk in the short term and that's when fluctuations in the market uh, affect it from my own dealings with clients uh, clearly my job is to put together a plan so genuinely i do not get clients suddenly going oh my god it's awful because if we've done our job properly and we understand what risk they are happy with, and we understand through the length of their savings period uh, what risk they can afford to take, then there might be the occasional, ooh, the markets are down a bit, and they might feel slightly uncomfortable. We might have to have a conversation to remind them this, but you, we don't get people going, 
my God, this is awful. I'll take my money out because they they know what they're in for. And every year you'll revisit that and make sure the plan is the same. I think in war, they always say um, a plan only, only lasts until the initial engagement. So you set a plan and you revisit it, but you should not tear it up because it's probably not wrong. It probably needs tweaking. Um, but I think I am an advisor, so I think advice is very valuable. People who invest on their own without advice, they do need to still create their own plan, understand what their view of risk is, understand what they will feel like if they lose a bit, but also sort out what they're saving for, how long it's going to be, and whether they should worry or not. Uh, And if they're going to worry, then they're probably, probably um, going for a bit too much risk in the short term. Okay, and just quickly, I just on on this idea of sort of a, you've got to have the appropriate assets for where the goals are, you know, how far away they are, so that you're sort of getting that kind of risk right. But it's not binary, is it? It's not as if you shift your entire portfolio. It's more the shape of the portfolio, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. People often just think of shares and cash or something like that, but in reality. Um, there is something which, I'd, if I was with you, I'd share with you. We've got a sort of a plan of of what at any one year, what asset is the best asset, and the one thing that apps that demonstrates is what's top of the pops one year is typically not the next year. Quite often, what's good one year might be awful the next because different circumstances favour different investments. And on the day someone retires, they could look back and they could find the best thing they could have possibly invested for that 20 years. But you'll be sure that on any one day, one asset or another will be better and some will be growing and some will be falling. And when when an investment advisor like myself uh, looks at risk, we actually mix different investments. And those different investments do different things. Some are almost like a seesaw in that when one's doing well, another will do badly. And therefore, it's a balance of different things. You will never know exactly what's going to be best. It is true that in a capitalist society, generally speaking, shares will provide the best return in the long term, because that's what drives the economy. Um, But some shares will do better than others. Some geographical areas will do better than others. Um, And at any one particular time, shares will be the most volatile, so they could be the thing that's falling. The The trick is to mix different things, and that mix creates um, a middle-of-the-road approach, a blended approach, or a managed approach, depending how people use it, but not always chasing the same, uh, the, the one investment to try to be the best at any one time, because the best investment managers get it wrong. No one can spot what's best every single day, so it's a matter of having a point at which you have a sensible blend and the investment uh, managers that I, I work with put together portfolios for individual people and they will all be broadly similar and they won't certainly move 50% from equities to gilts, but they will move a little bit and it's it's like sort of steering a boat. You gently move it to, to account for things, um, but inevitably it always has to be a mix of different assets and that's what makes a portfolio riskier or not and why you can have a a longer term or a shorter term approach and then in terms of your approach you know when you're saving for your retirement 
what is the best approach? You know, do we wait during periods where markets are more volatile, where we see falls in value, and then try and put as much money into the market? Or is it a better strategy to drip feed money into the market over time? Is, is, that, is that the best way to save for the long term? I think um, with things like pensions, for instance, they're driven by tax relief often. So so you only have a limited amount in each year, sometimes more or less, but there's a limit. So sometimes what you can pay is driven by either the amount that you've got. If you're saving out of monthly salary, then monthly saving makes sense. If you're uh, a businessman, you can save once a year, then you have a certain amount each year. And so some of it is driven by simply when you have money. But largely speaking, um, it is impossible to think I will invest on this day because it's the best day to do it, because actually you don't know what the next day is going to be. So you might well say at the moment, oh, markets are a bit depressed because of inflation and cost of the war. Now is not a bad time to put my money in. I don't know if it's better or worse tomorrow. I know it might be lower than it was a week ago. So therefore, it appears better at that. But the only thing that really is important is the difference in price from when you buy that asset or invest in that fund and when you sell it. So if at the end of 20 years, it's more than it is today, then you've made a gain. Clearly, if I put it in and it's a bit lower than it is today, then I've made more of a gain. But you will never know where that is. In the long run, any long-term investment graph, generally speaking, just heads gently upwards. And at any one time, there might be peaks and troughs. There might be quite major depressions. But when you look over the longer term, they are flattened out relatively. So the small daily fluctuations in the long run don't make a lot of difference. Um, an actual fact, if markets are depressed and if values are low, that's probably a good time to save because when you ultimately leave, if it's higher, there's a greater growth. But there is something that's referred to as pound cost averaging, which is a fancy term. And that basically means if you save over time, things will average out. Points where the markets are low, you buy more units or you buy more investment and you get better growth. Points where the markets are high, less so. But by doing it regularly, you even that out. You know, if you asked someone about an investment, they would probably say, oh, I would like a nice even growth. I don't like peaks and troughs. Investments aren't like that. They have peaks and troughs. But if you save regularly into them, effectively, the effect on that savings is, is evened out and, and you get an average long-term growth. So it's impossible to guess what the best date is. By regularly saving, um, it does flatten that and it actually fits in best with most people if someone's earning monthly i would suggest there is very little benefit in trying to save that up month for month and then stick it in your investments at a particular point it's easier and smoother to simply drip it in monthly and and accept that the markets will have peaks and troughs yeah, and um, actually at investment platforms as well, it can be quite cost effective because when you sort of round things up and you do monthly investing, you often get a much lower charge if you're buying things, you know, you're trading things like shares or investment trusts as well. Um, so it can be quite a cost effective way of, of, of investing. Um, 
Richard, I just wanted to also add, you know, the government help us out in a in a big way in terms of showering us with some extra money. Can you just briefly sort of remind listeners of, of the, the benefits, the tax benefits of both your ISIS structure and also your, your pensions as well through things like SIPs? Absolutely, absolutely. The government basically um, tried to nudge us into behaviours that they would like us to do. So you can buy and sell anything. Um, people buy and sell second houses. When they do, that the government aren't that keen on that because it starts to um, use up houses that other people might be living in and you're making gain on. So so would rather you didn't do that. So taxes are a bit higher on that sort of thing. What they would like you to do is they would like you to save for the long term to provide for retirement so that we don't end up with lots of pensioners that can't afford to live. So they encourage savings into pensions uh, and, and ISIS. And they do that simply by charging less tax. So if you've got a choice of investments and one pays less tax, generally speaking, you will go into that. Um, I think in addition uh, with pensions and ISIS, they have become so commonplace that that they are they are simply administratively cheaper to go into a pension is, is cheaper and less hassle than say buying a second home um so so the tax advantages realistically are if you if you own most assets they will have they will grow and shrink in value but in the long run hopefully grow and that is usually chargeable there's usually a tax on that called capital gains tax um and if they generate an income so shares generate dividends or or gilts pay a, an interest payment or um cash plays interest, then that income is generally taxable as income tax. Now, if you go into an ISA, any amounts in there are free from capital gains tax and free from income tax. So they can grow completely tax-free. What you put in, you can put in what you like, but only up to a cap of 20,000 a year. So they want to encourage regular savings, not someone putting in a million, but people putting in thousands in each year and saving for the long run pensions are similar but even more so so if you save into a pension then when you put money in you actually get tax relief so for a basic rate taxpayer um if they saved a hundred pounds they would actually get tax relief on it which means that you say i'm going to save a hundred pounds you actually pay in 80 and the government gives you another 20. So in those, you actually put money in new gain when you get some of that tax back that you've been paying. It then grows tax-free, both from capital gains and income, similar to an ISA. The back end, however, of a pension, what they want is they want you to put money in, save for the long term, and provide for your retirement. So putting money in, you get tax relief to encourage it. It grows for 20, 30, 40, 50 years possibly, and doesn't pay any tax. I mean, there's a bigger fund. Um, but if it's a very high fund, then they will tax you at the back end as a surcharge. That's called the lifetime allowance. But the, the level there is the catchy £1,073,100, which is a strange number, but that's mm. that's just how it's come about. So a very large fund, there will be a penalty. But basically, savings you get tax relief on, tax-free growth. When it comes out, a quarter is then tax tax-free as lump sum and the rest is taxable and what they're doing there is they're saying give you tax relief to put the money in it will grow nice and tax rate but on the back end we don't want you taking out as one big lump you can but then you'll get all as one payment and so you'll pay basic rate higher rate additional rate tax 
But if you take some out as a cash sum and then take an income, you'll just be on the normal tax rates, probably basic rate, maybe maybe your personal notes. So that's deliberate to encourage that long-term saving. Now, in actual fact, what do people save for? They save for their holidays, which probably should be as cash. They save for cars, but maybe they buy those on a, on a loan. They save for houses, that might be on a loan, most probably a mortgage. Uh, in the short term, they'll save for cash. The thing that most people save for in the long term is retirement one way or another. And and that's that's what the government would like you to do. They want you to, so they encourage ISAs and pensions. There are other investments which are easier to access earlier. They don't have retirement dates on them. Um, and quite simply, you pay tax on the growth there. So there are valuable tax reliefs. And I think if you're, if you're saving principles for the long term, Pensions and ISAs are made to do that. They are relatively low cost and they, they give you quite good tax relief to, to use that method. Yeah, with £20,000 for an ISA and 40000 per year for, for a pension, it's pretty generous. I think that, that covers most of us in terms of what we would want to save for the future. Um, and, you know, just thinking about that, you know, the retirement options there. So, of course, at, at 55, you can then take that that uh, lump sum and you can start with withdrawing from your pension and some people may be thinking well, do you know what this this pandemic maybe made me reassess things a little bit and and I you know I could I'm, I'm older than 55 I could start to draw from my pension do you think wh- what do you think people need to consider if they're sort of thinking about this option of retiring early you know what is this feasible um, it is feasible, but again, it's important to understand what you get because in every survey of individuals, when people ask how long they think they're going to live, they underdo it. Typically, on average, if you're asked how long you think you're going to live, you think how long your parents and grandparents lived. And so on average, I don't know the exact figure, what last time I looked, it was on average people think they're going to live around about five to seven years less than they actually do. So the massive risk of retirement is spending your money too early. Um, lots of people, particularly after the pandemic, want to finish work. They either think, God, I spent two years stuck in my house. I really want to see the world. I'd like to retire earlier and travel. Or they think, oh, I've you know, if they work in the NHS or something, they've worked very hard and they just want to start end it. And so a lot of people want to retire earlier. But I think what you have to bear in mind that the, again, I'm not sure the exact figure will vary, but it, it, somewhere in the region of 85 is the average life expectancy. So someone retiring at 60 has got to provide for themselves for something like 25 years. Some people retire at 55 They've got to provide themselves for like 30 years, but they have five years less to save. So taking your money earlier has quite a big impact. Your funds have had less time to grow and you've got to stretch them out. And and we obviously provide a lot of advice to people as they retire. And our concern is, is the sustainability of that income to make sure they've got enough to last. Um, because the, the last thing you want is to run out of money when you're older and you're not working and you can't replenish it. So again, you need to get an understanding of what you want. With retirement, it can be tricky because, of course, someone retiring at, say, 60, 
um, they can start drawing their pension then. They'll have a state pension, which will probably start at, say, 66, or by the time I get there, 67, 68, something like that. So they have a period of no income, and then they start to get some income. But that state benefit, I think at the moment for most people, the maximum is 9,331, I think. That's a nice amount, but it's probably not what they would want to their, their only income in retirement, certainly not if they want to have a, a retirement involving lots of travel and enjoyment. So you have to try to think, well, I'm going to have to provide more early on, and then I'm going to get that, that state pension for kicking in. You've also got to think that realistically, if people, if ever dreams of a wonderful time at traveling the world, they're going to spend money early on. And probably by the time they're in their 70s and 80s, they are going to be more sedentary. They're less likely to, to want to sit on planes for a long time, if nothing else. So what, what an advisor would do is actually look at what people want to do and how much they want to spend and when they want to spend it. Because it's a lot more expensive to spend 40,000 a year for 10 years and then 20,000 a year than it is to spend 30 all the way along. Because that money's been spent up front, so there's no growth on it. So people can afford to retire, um, but they've got to bear in mind that they might go early, their state pension's still going to be what it was, and they've got to think about what they want to spend and when they want to spend it. And, and that's where we do a lot of is simply people come to them, can I afford to tell? How can I afford to live? Uh, and a lot of our job is trying to stop them spending too much early on. And it's their money, they can do what they like, but people really need to know that if they spend too big a proportion in the first few years, that can affect them for the next 15 or 20. Um, but what I do always say is, Money actually has no value until you do something with it. A million pounds in the bank is worthless unless one day you're going to exchange that for something, for, for food or for heating or for travel or for a lifestyle. So just having a big pot of money you never touch is, is really quite sad. Having earned it all, it is there to enjoy. So trying to get the balance of not just being the, the richest man in the graveyard, as they say, against running out early on is tricky, but it's very important, very important to understand that. Okay, final final question really is, I just want to get your, your view, you know, inflation is pretty high, interest rates are pretty low. What would be your sort of view on how much cash you should be keeping and I know this is probably quite dependent on your goals, but how much cash you should broadly be keeping versus your view on, on whether or not you should be investing right now? Yes, we, we spend a lot of time with clients talking about cash, uh, and it is very different. Uh, I have a client who, who spends about £20,000 a year, and, and she believes she needs £400,000 in cash plus investments. And the fact that clearly that £400,000 would, would, would last her her whole lifetime um, makes no difference because it's whatever is important to her. Cash will always lose money compared with inflation. It will always lose money compared with inflation because interest rates, once you've earned the interest to pay tax on it, it, it never reaches inflation. So with cash, you know that it is 
it is not very good as an investment in itself. Um, however, it is very important. You do need an asset that you can draw on when you need it. And of course, investing in shares, they could be up or down. So cash should not really be thought of as a long-term investment. It tends to refer to as savings because it is that it's money you're putting by for a shorter term person per, purpose. Um, investments tend to be longer term, but are more volatile in the short term. So realistically, um, what we always do on our basic principles is if we look at how much money someone wants to spend, what their expenditure is, if their expenditure every year is, say, £40,000, and their um, their absolutely essential expenditure, so the, the short-term money they have to spend, is 20 then we would say, as an absolute minimum, they ought to really have six months of essential expenditure. So some of that basis should really have a pot of cash of about £10,000. Um, now, that's not because it's a good investment. It's because if something goes wrong, you will need cash in the short term. And so we work on the basis of a minimum of six months worth of essential expenditure. Now, more than that is better, but clearly, if you had five years worth of expenditure, the chance of needing that is very, very low. So what someone wants will vary. But having no cash at all, if your, your pension suddenly stopped or your wage stopped and you've got nothing to turn to, uh, leaves you in a very precarious situation. So cash, I believe, is not a long-term investment. It, it is secure in that the value doesn't change, but against inflation, it always falls. So in the long run, not helpful. In the short run, it's the money you turn to. Uh, and we often refer to it as a contingency fund. It's there in case something goes right. So I would always say at least 50% of your annual essential expenditure. When people get into retirement and they've got less income, that typically grows. And in a perfect world, I would say, about one year's of spending, one year's worth of spending. So if something goes awry, you've got some cash to fall back on to give you time to, to put other things into place. Um, but it is a personal choice. Some people like a lot more. And if they're willing to say, well, I'm going to miss out on long-term real returns and opt for the fact I always have that to turn to, then that's not wrong. It's not as efficient and it won't give us good long-term returns, but it's not wrong. But you can't live without some cash because if you put everything into long-term savings and suddenly shares fall by 20%, then your available cash at that point has been massively hit. Okay. Well, a very big thank you to Richard Harwood from Bruin Dolphin. Richard, thank you. Thank you. Well, a very big thank you to Richard Harwood from Bruin Dolphin there. Really fascinating chat i think he just he just speaks about uh finance and financial planning in such a relatable way really it's very easy to understand uh where he's coming from there so um some really good insights um, for us there hope you enjoyed the pod we uh we'll be back again in a fortnight's time don't forget to check out the new site as i said at the top We've also got the new magazine coming up very shortly. If you uh, want to receive the latest, make sure you sign up on the site as well. Um, it just means that we'll drop that straight into your, your inbox as soon as it's ready. Um, plenty of interesting stuff 
to talk about really around Tax Your End. And of course, we'll be getting our, our journalists back on the pod to discuss some of the things that they've written for the magazine. So hope you're well. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.